Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Okay, today we are joined by Dr. Sudhir Hazari Singh, who is a fellow of the British Academy and has been a fellow and tutor in politics at Balliol College, Oxford, since 1990. He's a very, very prolific historian who's got a wonderful new book, Black Spartacus, The Epic Life of Toussaint Louverture, that has just come out. Uh, it's a brilliant book, and uh, we're so excited to have you here on Race and Democracy. Welcome, Sudhir. Thank you for having me, Peniel. It's a pleasure to be with you. You know, I read this book, and I've read a lot on the Haitian Revolution, and I don't feel I've ever read such a great book about Toussaint um, and placing the revolution uh, in the wider context of the Atlantic world, the uniqueness of, of Haiti to ideas of citizenship and, and dignity and liberty all around um, the world. I want to start at the beginning. Why did you write this book? Uh, you've written about Napoleon. Um, obviously, you're, you're a historian of this period, but why did you write the book Black Spartacus? Well, thank you for your kind words about the book, Peniel. Um, they mean a lot to me. I have worked a lot, as you as you mentioned, um, on various aspects of French history. And I suppose I've always been interested in two things. One is... Um, great leaders or important leaders, and I've written books about Napoleon, from Napoleon all the way through to Charles de Gaulle, and I'm interested in in leadership and, and, and how leadership emerges, particularly in moments of crisis and moments of political change. Secondly, I've always been interested in the history of what the French call the Republican tradition, which is basically the, the way of thinking, the pattern of thinking that emerges I suppose, in the late Enlightenment, and then uh, uh, is given a, a, a new lease of life through the French Revolution. And so finding out how that Republican tradition um, has developed in France has been um, one of my um, main areas of research. And, and what I've never done is to actually um, trans transpose or transport those two interests to the French colonial and imperial settings, um, and to Saint Louverture, uh, about whom I had heard a little, mainly through having read C.L.R. James's wonderful <laughs> book about him a long time ago. To Saint Louverture just seemed to me to be the obvious person who would allow me to do both of those things, to continue with my interest in um, uh, great heroic figures, um, but also at the same time to explore in a rather different way what happens to um, Republicanism as a as a system of ideas once it migrates into this uh, imperial and colonial setting. And talk to us about Toussaint um, Toussaint Louverture because he's uh, this Haitian revolutionary. But in Black Spartacus, you really place him alongside of these these global uh, figures. You know Thomas Jefferson, um, Napoleon. I think Toussaint still hasn't received his due, but uh, Black Spartacus, and there, there's certainly a new interest. And by the end of the book, you show there's always been permanent interest in Toussaint. But I think you really show him as not just this revolutionary warrior, but as this really intellectual, this thought leader, uh, this this figure who um, is interested in different kinds of political 
uh, and and juridical um, reforms uh, in Haiti. Um, so let's talk about him and his background. There's not that much known about the early Toussaint, but let's talk about who is he and how does he become really this 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 not just military genius, but this political uh, genius as well. Yes, it's a very interesting story because, of course, we know a lot about really the last decade of his life from 1791 onwards um, when he becomes this uh, revolutionary leader. But uh, um, but we know very little, in fact, um, about the first 50 years of his life, uh, about which there are only um, a handful of documents, uh, literally, um, in, in the archives. We know that he was born sometime probably in the early 1740s. Even that, we don't have um, the exact date. We know that he was born on one of the plantations in the north of Saint-Domingue called the Breda Plantation, which was a, mainly a sugar plantation. Um, Saint-Domingue being, of course, France's richest um, colony at the time, uh, producing vast quantities of sugar, among other things. Toussaint's parents were enslaved um, and forcibly transported across the Atlantic um, from the kingdom of Alada, which in today's terms is uh, mainly falls in the Republic of Benin. And mm -hmm. Toussaint spends the first 50 years of his life um, on this plantation. Um, he's physically frail. We know that because one of the nicknames that he was given when he was a kid was skinny stick, fatra baton. So he's a frail, frail little thing. But despite being physically frail, um, he had uh, enormous intellectual uh, talents, which were uh, remarked almost immediately by those around him. And one of the characteristics of Toussaint Louverture, even in these uh, early years when he's growing up as the son of an enslaved, of an enslaved uh, father and mother, is his capacity to absorb um, uh, uh, knowledge and, uh, and information from a wide variety of sources. So he picks up a lot of stuff from his father, who had been a senior official in the Alada kingdom. So he picks up a lot of religious ideas, scientific ideas, even, I suspect, ideas about uh, military uh, tradition, because the Alada people were quite a, wa a warlike people. Um, but he also picks up a lot from uh, mid to late 18th century Saint-Domingue. He's a devout Catholic. He's someone who picks up things from the resistance ideologies of uh, runaway slaves. And of course, there's the Vaudou religion, which is beginning to emerge and with which Toussaint uh, uh, establishes quite uh, interesting and, and, and powerful connections. So um, alongside perhaps the slightly better known uh, influences that shaped him, which are the influences of the radical enlightenment, um, the ideas of Diderot and Renal, um, uh, which, uh, for example, C.L.R. James talks a lot about. I think mm -hmm. one of the interesting things I try and do uh, in, in my earlier chapter is to stress the variety of intellectual and uh, cultural influences that shape Toussaint. He's someone who's literally uh, blending together in his mind, um, uh, Europe, uh, the Caribbean, and Africa. And that's what makes him from the get-go, I think, someone who uh, is so exciting and so and, and who has so much uh, potential. You know, you say in chapter one, this is a quote from Toussaint, I was born a slave, but nature gave me the soul of a free man. I think one of the things that uh, Black Spartacus does so well is place 
Toussaint really almost as this kind of environmental revolutionary as well. Um, there's such a huge ecological component. He's sort of one of the world's greatest horsemen. Um, and in a way, he sort of has, uh, reading your book, he sort of has a mental map of the entire island of Santo <laughs> um, which is, I mean, it's nothing short of extraordinary. And so let's talk about Toussaint as a, as a person, the skills that he had, uh, you know, how, how he's able to, he's really in love with Haiti and it's not just the Breda plantation. Um, he's, he's able to sort of map out the, the topography of the entire island, including um, uh, uh, Spanish Saint-Domingue when we think about what he does over there. So north, south, east, west, from Jacques Mel to Port-au-Prince to, you know, Lacay, it's, it's, it's remarkable. So let's talk about Toussaint and this idea of nature giving him the soul of a free man. Yes, thank you, because I think it's, it's one of the absolutely pivotal um, uh, uh, underpinnings of um, who he was as a, who he was, I would say, almost spiritually, um, because he has this closeness, closeness to nature, which we think probably starts to develop in him um, when he, as a young boy, he was uh, what, what was called a gardien des bêtes, uh, basically a shepherd. Um, so uh, he he tended to um, the um, uh, 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 plantation animals, um, and indeed tended to them also in the sense of ministering to them when they were unwell, because one of the skills that his father taught him, and this was really a skill that came all the way from the kingdom of Alada, was um, uh, the science of medicinal herbs. So Toussaint is someone who, from a very young age, uh, can distinguish uh, particular herbs that can be used to cure various ailments. So one of the other nicknames that he has is uh, Dr. Feuille, you know, someone who literally is a is a is a herb doctor, as it mm-hmm. were, um, and um, and and so his interests in nature are partly scientific in that sense, but partly spiritual, um, because he has he also develops this great um, capacity to travel around, um, uh, uh, and 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 he does that because he's he's an, he's the most accomplished horseman, I think. Um, of his of his entourage, uh, we know from from letters that I've looked at that people used to come from all over the north of Saint Domingue to consult him when they wanted to purchase a horse. Right, so he had this kind of expertise about animals, and of course he uses this skill just to go roaming around. Um, and and I think. Uh, uh, he travels uh, extensively, crisscrosses the whole of the territory. Um, and, and, and I think long before the revolution starts in 1791, this mental map of the, uh, of the territory is one that has been um, imprinted um, in his head. Um, and uh, I remember reading a letter that uh, he writes quite late in the day. Um, this is after... Um, uh, as a uh, as a general, as a French Republican general, he has basically captured and conquered the Spanish side of the of the territory. Uh, one of the things he finds is that the Spaniards have overexploited some of the um, some of the trees, and he says, "I I remember that in particular parts of Santo Domingo, there were far more trees of of such and such a kind that." 
I think mahogany was was the one that he was particularly incensed about the over exploitation. But but you know this was just from memory. I mean he could remember where particular uh, 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 um, uh, pl- you know tr- mahogany trees were located, which I think is quite extraordinary. And I think another source of this closeness to nature, um, and, and this goes to underline his the, the diversity of influences that shape him. And uh, Haitian anthropologists have been doing a lot of interesting work in this in this area uh, in recent decades. Another source is his um, connection, I, I, I would say, with um, what is left of uh, the um, uh, culture, spirituality of the um, American uh, uh, indigenous, Native American indigenous people of mm-hmm. Hispaniola, the Teno people. Uh, who were very close to nature, and 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 some of whose spiritual ideas um, uh, still survive, notably um, through uh, through some of the Vodou ceremonies. So Toussaint is um, connecting with nature in all these different ways, and uh, and this closeness to nature remains a an integral part of his personality throughout the rest of his life. How does he get his last name? Well, that's a lovely story because, of course, uh, uh, enslaved people did not have surnames. So um, for the first 50 years of his life, he's simply called Toussaint Breda, Breda being the name of the plantation. And and you can see uh, in the early years of the revolution how his identity uh, shifts. Uh, I found some documents dated from the late 1791, early 1792, where you still see him being referred to as Toussaint Esclave de la, de la Plantation Breda. So Toussaint Breda is still how he's, he's being called and he, how he's calling himself. Then as the insurrection gains more um, power, authority, and, and when Toussaint himself becomes uh, uh, one of the one of the emerging leaders um, of the insurrection uh, uh, one of the uh, one of the early leaders of the insurrection uh, a man called Georges Biassou some of whose correspondence has survived starts to call Toussaint Monsieur Toussaint and then in 1793 when Toussaint really um, uh, uh, comes into his own, as it were, um, as a leader. In August 1793, uh, he, his first proclamation in which he signs the name Toussaint Louverture appears. Um, and Louverture is uh, very c- typical of Toussaint because it's both at the same time a nod to the Enlightenment, to the idea of ouverture as in um, emancipation, uh, opening, freeing the spirit, um, uh, opening oneself up to uh, to enlightenment, um, uh, but at the same time, uh, it's a nod to uh, to the Vodou religion, where one of the spirits is is known as Papa Legba, and he is the spirit that uh, allows you to to be guided through uh, the crossroads. He's the person who takes you from uh, one part of your life through through to the next. So this is very characteristic of Toussaint because he he very often in in his speeches would say things that could uh, uh, just as easily uh, be interpreted and, and received by a European audience as by an African-born uh, audience. And, and, and one should remember that um, you know, around 60% of the uh, former enslaved people of Saint-Domingue in the late 18th century were born in Africa. 
Uh, I'd love for us to have a conversation about the actual twists and turns of the revolution, you know, the the insurrection that becomes this revolution. Uh, And really, as you say at the start of the book, it's really a 15-year journey from the French Revolution in 1789 to Haiti as this independent Black Republic in 1804, and Toussaint starting in 1791 being such an integral part. But there are so many different actors here. At times, it's dizzying. Um, your book reads very cinematically, but I also thought it, it needs a cast of characters in the sense of, um, you know, you've got the French, you've got the British and the Spanish, but then within Haiti, uh, you have um, the coloreds, uh, you know, the, 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 the folks who are, who are mixed. And there's all these different intrigues that are happening um, tell us, wh- you know, what is Toussaint doing in the first three years from 1791 to 1794 that then changes, you know, where, you know, obviously he's going to become the, the governor general of the island. He's going to become governor general for life. He's going to create a constitution. I, and, and, and I'll start there and then I'll, I, I, have, a, I have a second part, but what's going, what's going on? You know, like, like give us a a sense, especially of the early Toussaint, those first three years, how he's becoming this 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 grand general and this grand architect. Well, um, you're right, Peniel, that he faces um, multiple challenges in those um, early years. And I think one can summarize them pretty much along the lines that you um, you have mentioned. Um, the French uh, have had a revolution. Uh, in 1789, um, but it's a revolution that's been stolen by the white planters. And so in Saint-Domingue, it's probably better to characterize the early, the first two years, 1789, 1790, 1791, actually as years of counter-revolution, because the white planters refuse to uh, 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 apply any of the great revolutionary principles, um, not to mention the Declaration of the Rights of Man, to um, the enslaved population of Saint-Domingue. They don't even want to extend any civil or political rights to the mixed-race uh, population, which is just as numerous um, as, as the white, plant, as the white uh, settlers. You know, there are about 30,000, 35,000 white settlers, 30,000, 35,000 uh, people of mixed race um, who have no rights. Uh, I mean, some of them are, are, are very wealthy, uh, and, and and one thing that uh, people often forget is that around a quarter of the uh, enslaved men and women of Saint-Domingue were actually enslaved by uh, mixed-race people, right? So so the mixed-race community is actually part of the, the system of slavery. And, and how many enslaved Africans were, were in Saint-Domingue at this time? And that's the crucial figure of 500,000, right? So that allows you to see... Um, how and why this uh, uh, explosion takes place and why I think uh, uh, it's successful, um, because they have numbers on their side, unlike in um, many other parts of the Caribbean at that time, where there are you know, strong um, insurrectionary movements, but they don't have um, that degree of numerical superiority. But so Toussaint 
uh, is having to deal with the French who are refusing to uh, move at all on the question of of, of reforming or uh, abolish, uh, abolishing slavery. Um, in 1790, when the French finally realized that their goose is cooked unless they uh, make some gesture towards the uh, black people of Saint-Domingue. So in 1793, the French uh, representatives in Saint-Domingue uh, re- rather reluctantly agreed to, to abolish slavery. Um, that then prompts the white planters to turn to the British, who are based in in uh, in neighboring Jamaica. And basically what, what then starts is uh, a British intervention, which lasts for five years, and the British spend, you know, 10 million pounds, uh, send in 20,000 men. They end up occupying parts of western and southern Saint-Domingue, and Toussaint fights them and eventually kicks them out of the island. But before that, he's also had to take on the Spaniards, the Mm -hmm. dastardly Spaniards who have come in from the eastern part of the island and who are also trying to uh, uh, capitalize on the um, chaos that is produced by the 1791 slave insurrection. So Toussaint is fighting on these multiple fronts um, in these early years. Um, and I think um, one of the questions that people often have um, when they look at Toussaint's um, early itinerary is, you know, he seems to be sort of jumping around. Um, is he someone who uh, knows exactly where he wants to be going? Some people have even looked at it those early years and, and said, well, um, you know, his, his, his conversion to republicanism is, is just a tactical one. I don't think that at all. I mean, I think from the very word go, he has a very clear idea of what he wants to do and what he wants to achieve. It's the it's the context around him that is so um, unstable and unsteady, and he has to spend, particularly those early years, stabilizing it before he can commit himself fully to the French. So I would I would always reverse the the sort of traditional way which, for example, the French continue to talk about Toussaint as someone who converts to republicanism in 1794. I think that's just ridiculous because uh, um, the French were themselves not committed to a truly Republican policy in Saint-Domingue in the early uh, 1790s. It's only when um, the enslaved men and women of Saint-Domingue basically force the French to abolish slavery that Toussaint realizes that they are now um, potential allies. And then he um, goes over to the French side in 1794. I want us to talk about the context that you're talking of because... um, especially when it comes to Toussaint and his, his rivals, these other generals, these lieutenants. Um, I'm thinking of Jean-Jacques Dessalines, um, just, just a lot of different folks, Henry Christophe. Um, I think what you show throughout the book is how Toussaint is trying to knit together these coalitions with him as the head of the coalition always. But he's trying mm. to knit together these coalitions that really, when I was reading the book, as somebody who's both Haitian and a student of of Haitian history, I was thinking about how you really provide nuggets to show how difficult it's going to be in the post-revolutionary period to come up with a solidified, unified identity. (laughs) Because there are so many different regional and ethnic differences that in a way the the anti-slavery campaign, the revolutionary campaign for citizenship papers them over for a time. But you show all these tensions 
including what Toussaint tries to do with different kind of political reforms, but then the orders he does to keep the sugar plantations going, to keep the economy going, um, which are pretty brutal that, that I, I do want to talk about. But, mm. but how, does, how does Toussaint really become this kind of charismatic figure who's capable of really building these coalitions. You know, you have this, um, you know, this quote from Toussaint, he says, as I've already made clear to you, telling his officers in early 1795, um, a good soldier should appear cold from the outside and be methodical, loyal, and fiery in the inside. So this is really remarkable stuff, 1795. I mean, so you can see the kind of metal this person has. But you also say that he's a very ambiguous uh, leader. He's somebody who never wants to let people know what he's thinking. He's somebody who pops up unexpectedly mm. across the island consistently. You just never know where he's going to be around. Um, so tell no, us exactly. about Toussaint and, and you know, you know, almost, I think, I thought of parts of your book read like um, team of rivals in the sense of these these very strong personalities who, um, some who have their own armies, who have their own, you know, uh, groups of followers who Toussaint convinces um, to be part of that larger cause of Black freedom for Haiti. Yes, absolutely. I mean, on his... Um on his capacity to just appear and disappear. Um, one of my favorite quotes is by um, one of the uh, Napoleonic historians who turned up um, uh, in the French invasion in the early 19th century and who described Toussaint as a man who made himself invisible where he was and visible where he was not. Um, and I think that perfectly sums him up. He just seemed to be able to kind of project himself um, in all, in many different places, sometimes in different places at the same time. Um, and um, and part of that is uh, is just that he he was someone who uh, literally couldn't sit still. Um, uh, I have descriptions of people who were at meetings with him where they could see him kind of twitching and fidgeting and, and then sometimes literally like running out of the room and jumping onto a horse and then riding away. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so he's he's just totally extraordinary. And and, and everybody who met him uh, uses words like, uses these kind of superlative words because, you know, um, uh, it, 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 I mean, I, I tried to imagine what it must have been like to, to, to meet someone like that who, who just had this extraordinary amount of knowledge, um, who was always three or four steps ahead of you. You know, um, you were trying to come with a kind of particular um, request or proposal, and he'd already thought about, you know, the next two or three steps. And I think one of the reasons why he is so far ahead of everyone else is that because he's already made up his own mind um, where he wants to go and where he thinks the people of Saint-Domingue need to go. Um, the problem, uh, and this is where I think, um, uh, uh, you know, um, the, the sort of uh, uh, depictions of him as someone who is ambiguous or calculating or deceiving come come into play, I think he has to be uh, a little bit um, uh, uh, 
uh, guarded in terms of what uh, 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 what he reveals about his objectives. Because, of course, he can't say that he wants to, uh, for example, make Saint-Domingue uh, an autonomous entity within the French Empire, because the French haven't yet recognized that uh, colonies can be autonomous. It would take them another 150 years, literally 150 years, to come to that realization. Um, so, um, in some in some of these respects, Toussaint is just way ahead of his time. In other respects, um, and and you know, this is where I think um, concepts like Machiavellianism or you know um, revolutionary realism come to play. You know, when when you're in a revolutionary situation, you have to um, you have to make sure that uh, uh, you're exploiting all the opportunities that are available and open to you, even if it means sometimes. Uh, uh, making deals with your enemies. And I think his relationship with the British is an absolutely uh, great example of that. He fights them absolutely ruthlessly and and to the death, literally, and kicks them out of Saint-Domingue in 1998. But as soon as they've left, he he basically brings them back in because he realizes that a future Saint-Domingue needs to be able to trade with her neighbors and with the United States. Mm. And he basically uses um, the good offices of the Americans to um, strike a, a very uh, lucrative trade agreement with, with the British. And, um, and there's nothing, I don't think, you know, I think thinking about that as deception or, or, or ruse is, is sort of missing the picture. What he's, what he's simply concerned with are the best interests of Saint-Domingue. And even if those best interests mean sometimes doing things that the French disapprove of, he doesn't mind. And as we forward, fast forward a little bit in terms of the, into the 17, late 1790s, um, early turn of the century, why does um, Toussaint, uh, invade what we think of as now the Dominican Republic and take over the whole island? What are what are the geopolitical stakes uh, in carrying out that? And obviously, uh, there's a point where the island is completely unified. That is not destined to last. Uh, I'd like for us to talk about that because that, that enmity continues to this day. Uh, yes, between, absolutely. Between Haitians and Dominicans, even as Haitians and Dominicans have intermarried and have children together, and but there's there's also been that that very very bad blood, uh, Dominican massacre of Haitians uh, in the 1930s. Um, but t- talk to us about that that invasion in 1801 because I think that that is still reverberating um, today on on the island. Mm. Yes, no, um, it's a very um, complex story. Uh, and, and one has to wind back to 1795, in fact, when the French and the Spaniards signed, uh, signed a treaty, the Baal Treaty, in which the Spaniards actually uh, uh, cede um, the, eastern, uh, the eastern two-thirds of uh, Hispaniola to the French. So, so on paper, um, Santo Domingo, as it is then called, as, the, as what is today the Dominican Republic was then called, um, uh, uh, had been handed over um, uh, by the Spaniards to the French. However, the French, um, because um, uh, uh, Saint-Domingue was then uh, still in the middle of um, uh, 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 
this kind of internecine conflict, um, the French um, agreed that they would not take over formally until the time was right. Um, and Toussaint, um, by uh, seven, by 1800, really, because that's when you start to see him talking and actively thinking about uh, uh, invading Santo Domingo. By 1800, Toussaint has several reasons why um, he needs he, he feels he needs to take control of the island. The first is strategic, um, because he's already starting to think that the French um, or someone may try and invade. Um, uh, uh, the island of Hispaniola, and then try to remove him and his uh, black revolutionaries from from power, and uh, and the eastern side of the island is the natural place for uh, uh, troops to be uh, 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 sent to and, and and to disembark. So he wants to control the whole of the island. Um, there's also the issue of slavery. Uh, slavery has been abolished uh, on the French side, but it actually continues um, in the, on the Spanish side. And even worse, um, we have you know uh, documented evidence of uh, black uh, men and women being captured in on the French side and then being sold into slavery uh, uh, on the Spanish side. So Toussaint wants to put an end to that. Um, and also, um, because Toussaint is a complicated figure, um, what he also, uh, I think, uh, is looking at when he sees uh, Santo Domingo is a very large territory with very fertile um, uh, soil. And, you know, some of his proclamations, um, particularly those um, where he's sort of inviting French settlers to come and farm uh, uh, the land in Santo Domingo, are sort of classic, um, you know, um, Almost sort of settler colonial entrepreneurship, you know. Um, he wants he wants to exploit the resources of of this territory for uh, for the benefit of um, uh, the whole of the whole of the island, and indeed for the benefit of, of France as well. So there's a mixture of uh, of reasons why he wants to go ahead and do this. Um, uh, but um, it is true that he, he, when when he carries out this this invasion, he's acting against the express instructions of uh, of the Ministry of, of, of Navy, who has told him, uh, you know, categorically that this uh, intervention should not occur. And now, when we think about Toussaint's relationship with the French uh, and Bonaparte, and what leads to his downfall. Uh, let's discuss that because Dessalines is going to be one of Toussaint's generals and lieutenants, and Dessalines is going to want um, much more political access. And Toussaint just really co- sort of sees him as a cog, a useful one, uh, but just as a cog. And ultimately, that's going to lead to Toussaint's downfall, which is interesting because when he's taken, he doesn't have his bodyguards, he doesn't have his retinue, he doesn't have his soldiers around him, which I find fascinating. But let's talk about, you know, what ultimately leads to Toussaint's downfall, um, you know, his his efforts at some kind of conciliation with the French. Um, what, what, what makes him vulnerable to what actually happens to him? Well, I think things break down at two levels, uh, external and internal. Externally, his relationship with Napoleon, which is one that he, you know, he realizes that Napoleon is a very powerful figure and he does his absolute best to, um, to appease him. 
Um, and, you know, in the book, for example, I tell the story of how Josephine, who's Napoleon's wife, writes to Toussaint <clears throat> sometime in the second half of the 1790s to basically, uh, you know, plead for Toussaint's help in restoring the Boarnais family plantations in, uh, in or near Leogan. And, and, and Toussaint does that. So thanks to Toussaint, um, you know, Josephine and, and her family are, you know, earning money again from from their plantations. Um, mm. So, so he's helping the Bonapartes, and um, and Toussaint writes a number of letters to to, to Bonaparte after seventeen ninety nine. All of them go unanswered, um, and I think um, Napoleon is basically someone who is under the influence, all the more so that this chimes with his own ideology, under the influence of the pro-colonial and the pro-slavery lobby um, in France. And they are the ones who are calling the shots when it comes to colonial policy in the early 1800s. When you look at the entourage, Napoleon's entourage in the Conseil d'État, when you look at his, his Ministry of Navy, when you look at his key advisors on colonial policy, they're all people who are not just pro-empire, but they're pro-slavery. So um, that's where the relationship, I think, breaks down between Toussaint and the French at the national level. And unfortunately, um, as Toussaint is forced, I think, um, and this is my interpretation, to take uh, increasingly authoritarian measures, both politically and economically, uh, domestically, um, in order to keep the economy in particular uh, uh, afloat, um, so that he can fight off any um, any external attempt to to, to, to take control of Saint Domingue, um, he becomes uh, more and more authoritarian and loses some of the support that he had enjoyed um, in the previous years, and and, and particularly his. Um, I mean, there's two things that I think are are, are problematic internally. One is his. Uh, agrarian policy, and particularly there's a labor code that he promulgates in 1800, which basically introduces a form of martial law um, on the plantations. Uh, mm -hmm. It basically eliminates um, freedom of movement for the workforce, and this is something that is very greatly resented um, by the by the wage laborers. I mean, they're still wage laborers, but they're wage laborers who are tied to to the plantation. So, so for many of them, it almost feels like slavery is back. Although, of course, it's not the same thing, but it, it feels like it uh, in, in 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 some respects. And the other thing is. Toussaint feels that he has to um, uh, create a very clear barrier between Saint-Domingue and France, and that's what leads him to, to, to adopt the 1801 Constitution, which um, basically abolishes slavery forever. And, and the reason that is there is because Toussaint is already anticipating that the French sooner or later are going to come and try and restore slavery. Um, but in doing that, um, Toussaint creates, I suppose, uh, a, a space for some of his ambitious lieutenants to um, position themselves more favorably with the French. And that's mm -hmm. what happens with Dessalines. Dessalines uh, uh, realizes that um, you know, the French invasion, when it comes, presents him with an opportunity. Um, and he uses that opportunity to basically help the French um, uh, get hold of Toussaint so that Dessalines becomes um, the, uh, the dominant figure. And when we think about what the French did with Toussaint, um, he's taken to this fort, uh, a medieval fortress, and basically 
uh, he's almost starved to death and um, uh, just really, really mistreated. Can you tell us about the end in terms of what, what happens? Yes. So he's captured treacherously by the French. This is after he he's, he signs an, an honorable armistice. You know, the French invade and they try and defeat the, uh, the Saint-Domingue army militarily and, and they fail. So basically, there's a stalemate um, between the two groups. And Toussaint then signs a truce, which for him is just breathing space, because what he thinks is going to happen is, is what effectively happens two years later or a year and a half later, which is that the French will get worn down by, by, by disease, you know, particularly by yellow fever, and will eventually be, be defeated. But, but that strategy needs time. So Toussaint just signs an agreement according to which um, all his soldiers and officers are reintegrated into the French army anyway. But the French had other ideas, so they capture him, um, ship him and his family off to France. He's separated from his wife and children, and he ends up in this place called the Fort de Joux, which is in the uh, eastern side of France, cold, forbidding, uh, uh, in the Jura Mountains, um, and particularly cruel to put uh, uh, tropical person um, in such surroundings. Um, he's, he's treated relatively well in the first few months um, and even allowed to uh, access to pen and paper, which he uses to, among other things, to write what has come to be known as his memoir, although it's not really a kind of memoir in the conventional sense. It's more of a sort of report where he justifies all his actions. He attempts to justify all his actions to Napoleon. But when when Napoleon realizes that uh, he's not going to get um, much change with from Toussaint, he just um, starts to treat him very badly, and he's harassed. The amount of food that he receives is 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 reduced. The amount of uh, fuel that he receives is is also reduced, and he just starts to get sick. And those last few months are just terrible, you know. Late 1802, early 1803, he develops multiple ailments and is found dead in his cell in April 1803. But the revolution continues, and uh, Dessalines, Jean-Jacques Dessalines, becomes, you know, announces Haiti as a as a as a liberated republic, January 1st, 1804. What what is what is Toussaint's ultimate legacy? in this world of Atlantic revolutions that you describe, you know, because there's so much happening here. And so often we don't place Haiti as something that's central to that period of revolutionary enlightenment, really what gave us the Declaration of Independence, the rights of man, really Western modernity in a lot of ways. Black Spartacus shows you, uh, it centers Toussaint and Haiti as really the center of that project, uh, who believe in it more than the, the white architects and the European architects believe in it. Absolutely. I think that's, an, that's a lovely way of putting it, because in a sense, it seems to me if you're looking for the true embodiment of the revolution, of the revolutionary spirit of the late 18th century, it is in Saint-Domingue and Haiti that you have it, because they are the ones who actually take the principle of equality and, and fraternity to its logical limits, which is one which includes um, the abolition of slavery and the principle of racial equality. And those were two things which were absolutely at the heart of Toussaint's mm -hmm. own 
political and strategic objectives. And so his legacy is one which is phenomenal because you see Toussaint and the Haitian Revolution continuing to inspire anti-slavery movements all across the Atlantic world in the 19th century. And and it is a long 19th century because, you know, um, slavery isn't abolished in Cuba, for example, until the 1880s and in the United States, not until the, the mid-1860s. And, and, and people like Frederick Douglass talk... Um, are just endlessly fascinated by by Toussaint Louverture, so he, so so he becomes this iconic figure in the in the battle against slavery. And um, come come the twentieth century, once you start to see um, men and women um, fighting against um, colonialism and imperialism, um, there comes Toussaint, and there come the Haitian revolutionaries again. So one of the things I try to do at the end of the book is actually do a sort of genealogy, intellectual genealogy of how this revolutionary influence continues all the way up to um, the present. And so um, even if historians have been rather patchy and, and rediscovered the Haitian revolution relatively late, and and now now fortunately we're in a good good place when it comes to historical work on Haiti. There's a lot of it and, and a lot of it is and, and, and all of it is really of really great quality. For a long time there had been a silence, as Michel Rolf Trouillot um, declared uh, mm-hmm. about the Haitian Revolution. But my point is when it comes to um, the popular imagination, the, the imagination of men and women struggling against slavery, struggling against colonialism, struggling against imperialism, Toussaint Louverture and uh, the men and women of the Haitian Revolution never really died. All right, we'll close there. This is, <laughs> this is excellent. We've been chatting with uh, Sudhir Hazari Singh, who is a professor at Balliol College, Oxford, and um, an outstanding historian who's written extensively about French intellectual and cultural history and the Atlantic world. And his latest book is Black Spartacus, The Epic Life of Toussaint Louverture. And this is one of my uh, books of 2020 in this year of Black Lives Matter and uh, Global Revolt. Um, This is an epic tale of uh, not just Toussaint, but the Haitian Revolution and the wider revolutions of the Atlantic world that really centers Toussaint as this thought leader, as this revolutionary, as this black Spartacus. Uh, this is a real um, treat. It's a it's an epic work uh, for an epic life, uh, and just really well done. It's it's really been an honor, a pleasure uh, to talk to speak with you. Thank you very much, Peniel. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode, and you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.